The Anxious Bench, Chapter 4 Action of the Bench It creates a false issue for the conscience, unsettles true seriousness, usurps the place of the cross, results in widespread, lasting spiritual mischief. Let us now fix our attention on the action of the new system, directly and immediately considered. Without regard to its more remote connections and consequences, let us inquire what its merits may be in fact as it respects the interest it proposes to promote, namely, the conversion of souls. Is it the wisdom of God and the power of God, as its friends would fain have us believe, for convincing careless sinners and bringing them to the foot of the cross? Let the anxious bench, in this case, be taken as the representative of the entire system. No part of it carries a more plausible aspect. If it be found wanting and unworthy of confidence here, we may safely pronounce it to be unworthy of confidence at every other point. As usually applied, in seasons of religious excitement, I hold the measure to be spiritually dangerous, requiring great skill and much caution to be used without harm in any case, and as managed by quacks and novices, who are most ready to be taken with it, more suited to ruined souls than to bring them to heaven. This view is established by the following positions. 1. The anxious bench, in the case of an awakened sinner, creates a false issue for the conscience. God has a controversy with the impenitent. He calls upon them to acknowledge their guilt and misery with true repentance and to submit themselves by faith to the righteousness of the gospel. It is their condemnation that they refuse to do this. When any sinner begins to be sensible in any measure of his actual position in this view, he is so far awakened and under conviction. Now in these circumstances, what does his case mainly require? Clearly, that he should be made to see more and more the true nature of the controversy in which he is involved, till he finds himself inwardly engaged to lay down the weapons of his rebellion and cast himself upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. He needs to have his eyes fastened and fixed on his own relations, spiritually considered, to the High and Holy One, with whom he is called to make his peace. The question is, will he repent and yield his heart to God, or not? This is the true issue to be met and settled, and it is all important that he should be so shut up to this in his thoughts that he may have no power to escape the force of the challenge which it involves. That spiritual treatment must be considered best in his case, which serves most fully to bring this issue into view, and holds him most effectually confronted with it in his conscience, beneath the clear light of the Bible. But let the sinner in this state be called to come forward to a particular seat in token of his anxiety. He finds himself at once under the force of a different challenge. The question is not, will he repent and yield his heart to God? But, will he go to the anxious bench, which is something different altogether? Thus a new issue is raised, by which the other is obscured or thrust out of sight. It is a false issue, too, 
because it seems to present the real point in controversy when in fact it does not do so at all, but only distracts and bewilders the judgment so far as this is concerned. While the awakened person is balancing the question of going to the anxious bench, his mind is turned away from the contemplation of the immediate matter of quarrel between himself and God. The higher question is merged, for the time, in one that is lower. A new case is created for the conscience of artificial, arbitrary form and ambiguous authority. Can it be wise thus to shift the ground of debate, exchanging a strong position with regard to the sinner for one that is weak? Suppose it were made a point with awakened persons that they should rise up and confess before the congregation all their leading sins, in detail and by name, to break their pride, show their desire to be saved, excite prayer in their behalf, etc. Would not this requirement, interposed as a preliminary to the main point of conversion itself, and enforced by no proper sanction for the conscience, serve only to turn away the attention of such persons from the object with which it should be employed, thwarting the very interest it might affect to promote? And is there not room for objection to the anxious bench on the very same ground? It is certainly a little strange that the class of persons precisely who claim to be the most strenuous in insisting upon unconditional immediate submission to God scarcely tolerating that a sinner should be urged to pray or read the Bible, lest his attention should be diverted from that one point, are, as a general thing, nevertheless quite ready to interpose this measure in his way to the foot of the cross, as though it included, in fact, the very thing itself. And yet a pilgrimage to the anxious bench is in its own nature as much collateral to the duty of coming to Christ as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In either case, a false issue is presented to the anxious soul, by which, for the time, a true sight of its circumstances is hindered rather than promoted. It may be thought, indeed, that the movement of going to the anxious bench is so easily performed as not to be properly open to this exception. It may be considered a mere circumstance that can have no weight practically in the view now presented. But we shall see that this is not the case. However small the point involved may seem, it is not only of account as producing for the moment a factitious case of conscience open to doubtful disputation, but it includes also actual difficulty that cannot fail to be felt. Whether the challenge be refused or accepted, it becomes in most cases more than a circumstance, and is of no small force in the way of embarrassing the proper exercises of an awakened soul. 2. The anxious bench, in the case of those who come to it, is adapted by its circumstances to disturb and distract the thoughts of the truly serious, and thus to obstruct the action of truth in their minds. It is no doubt quite a common thing for persons to be carried into this movement who have little or no seriousness at the time, urged forward by sympathy or superstition or a mere taste for distinction. 
There is much reason in the remark of the Reverend Dr. Miller when he tells us that he should expect, in calling out the anxious, to find the persons rising and presenting themselves to be, for the most part, the forward, the sanguine, the rash, the self-confident, and the self-righteous, while many who kept their seats would prove to be the modest, the humble, the broken-hearted, the very depth of whose seriousness had restrained them from coming forward in this way. And yet the measure may be expected to prevail, of course, with many persons also, who are truly under conviction, and whom nothing but the fear of losing their souls could engage to thrust themselves thus into view. In any case, however, the genuine religious feeling that may exist is likely to be in a great measure overwhelmed by the excitement that must be involved in the very act of coming to such a resolution, and subsequently in carrying it into effect. The truth of this remark will be more clear when we remember that young persons, and females especially, form the main body commonly of those who are drawn to the anxious bench. Their susceptibility fits them to be wrought upon more readily than others, to the extent that it is necessary to secure this point. But the same susceptibility renders it certain that in circumstances so exciting it will be impossible for them to hold their thoughts or feelings in any such balance as the interest of religion requires. They of all others would need to be sheltered from stimulating impressions in this form at such a time instead of being forced to face them in their weakness. Take a single case, an illustration of the way in which the system may be expected to work. Here is a gentle girl, 16 or 17 years of age. She finds herself in the midst of a large congregation, where at the close of the sermon, the minister, encouraged by the general seriousness of the house, invites all who are concerned for the salvation of their souls to come forward and place themselves on the anxious seat. She has been perhaps a long time under some concern, or it may be that God's truth has been felt for the first time on this occasion, not with great force perhaps, but so at least as to bring her spirit to a solemn stand in the presence of her Maker. She hears the invitation, but shrinks from the thought of doing what the minister demands. The call, however, is reiterated and enforced by the most exciting appeals to the imagination. After a few moments, there is a stir. One is going forward to the bench, and then another, and another. She is struck, moved, agitated. A struggle has commenced in her bosom, which she herself is not prepared to understand. May she not be fighting against God, she asks herself, in refusing to go forward with the rest? May it not be in her case, at this moment, now or never? All this is solemnly crowded on her alarmed conscience by the whole character of the occasion in the way in which it is managed by the minister. Already her soul has passed from the element of conviction into the element of excitement. The still small voice of the spirit is drowned amid the tumult of her own conflicting thoughts. But see, she yields. With a desperate struggle, she has thrown herself forth into the aisle. Trembling and agitated in every nerve, poor victim of quackery, she makes her way, consciously in the eye of that large watching assembly, from one end of the house to the other, 
and sinks, half fainting with the effort, into a corner of the magic seat. And now, where is she in spiritual position? Are her tears the measure of her sorrow for sin? Alas, she is farther off from God than she was before this struggle commenced in her father's pew. Calm reflection is departed. Her hold upon the inward has been lost. Could any intelligent Christian parent, truly anxious for the salvation of his daughter, deliberately advise her in the circumstances which have been supposed to seek religion in this way? Can the pastor be wise who is willing to subject the lambs of his flock to such a process with the view of bringing the good seed of the word to take root and vegetate in their hearts? 3. The anxious bench is adapted to create and foster the ruinous imagination that there is involved in the act of coming to it a real decision in favor of religion. It is well known how in the Church of Rome certain observances are held to carry with them a sort of inward merit in this way, as though by themselves they had power to secure a spiritual blessing. There is a constant tendency with men indeed to invest the outward under some form with a virtue that belongs only to the inward, so as if possible to get religion and hold it as property or means for some other end instead of entering into it as the proper home of their own being. It is not strange then that the anxious bench should be liable to be so abused. It is only strange that sensible persons should make so little account of this danger as is sometimes done. We are gravely told, it is true, that coming to the anxious bench is not considered to be the same thing as coming to Christ. The measure is represented to be important on other grounds and for other purposes. Certainly it is not imagined for a moment that anyone in his senses will be found ready to say that coming to the bench is itself religion. But still that some such impression is liable to be created by the measure, and is extensively created by it in fact as it is commonly used, admits of no dispute. It is not uncommon indeed for those who make use of it to throw in occasionally something like a word of caution with regard to this point, and in some few instances, possibly, such prudence may be observed as fully to guard against the danger. But this is not common. As a general thing, even the cautions that are interposed are in such a form as to be almost immediately neutralized and absorbed by representations of an opposite character. The whole matter is so managed as practically to encourage the idea that a veritable step towards Christ at least, if not actually into his arms, is accomplished in the act of coming to the anxious seat. I have had an opportunity of witnessing the use of the measure in different hands and on different occasions, but in every case it has seemed to me that room was given for this censure. Indeed, I do not see well how the measure could be employed in any case with much effect without the help of some such representation. We find accordingly that the whole process, as it were in spite of itself, runs ordinarily into this form. Sinners are exhorted to come to the anxious bench as for their life by the same considerations precisely that should have force to bring them to Christ 
and that could have no force at all in this case if it were not confounded more or less to their perception with the other idea. The burden of all is presented in the beautiful but much prostituted hymn usually sung on such occasions, Come, Humble Sinner. The whole of this is made to bear, with all the weight the preacher can put into it, on the question of coming to the anxious seat. Every effort is employed to shut up the conscience of the sinner to this issue, to make him feel that he must come or run the hazard of losing his soul. Advantage is taken of his hopes and fears in every form of awakening and stimulating appeal to draw him from his seat. The call is so represented as to make this the test of penitence. Those who come are welcomed as returning prodigals who have decided to come out from the world and be on the Lord's side, while all who refuse to come are treated as showing just the opposite temper, and it often happens that the preacher, in the warmth of his zeal, charges upon their refusal in this view the same guilt and madness and peril, precisely, that lie upon the deliberate rejection of Christ himself. Now it is an easy thing to say, in these circumstances, that after all, the anxious bench is not substituted for Christ. So the Puseyite and Papist disclaim the idea of putting into his place the baptismal font. But in both cases, it is perfectly plain that Christ is seriously wronged notwithstanding. In both cases, the error is practically countenanced and encouraged that coming to Christ and the use of an outward form are in whole, or at least to some considerable extent, one and the same thing, with the difference only that the form in one case is of divine prescription, while in the other it is wholly of man's device. It is true indeed that the mourners, as they are sometimes termed, are still treated, after coming to the bench or altar, as persons yet unconverted. This should neutralize, it might seem, the idea of any such saving virtue in the measure, as is here supposed to be encouraged, in the usual style of calling out the anxious. But this is not the case. The coming is not accepted at once as conversion, though exhibited apparently as the same thing immediately before. But still it is taken practically for something closely bordering on conversion. The mourners are counted nearer to the kingdom of heaven than they were before. They are exhorted now to go on as having actually begun a divine life. The process of conversion is commenced. They have come to the birth, and all that is wanted to bring them fully into the new world of grace is the vigorous prosecution of the system of deliverance to which they have now happily committed their souls. The anxious bench is made still to be the laver of regeneration, the gate of paradise, the womb of the new Jerusalem. Conversion is represented to be far easier here than elsewhere. We find accordingly that this idea fairly carried out leads certain sects of the full new measure's stamp to profess a peculiar tact and power in carrying the process of spiritual delivery regularly out at once to its proper issue. It is only for want of proper treatment, they say, and because there is not strength to bring forth, in other cases, 
that souls are brought thus far without being born at once into the kingdom. Their anxious bench, or the altar where their mourners kneel and roll, is commended to the world as a more perfect organ of conversion. Once fairly within its grasp, the soul as a general thing is quickly set free, often in the course of a few minutes, and very commonly before the close of the meeting. They know how to get the anxious through. All this is sufficiently extravagant, but still it is only a gross expression of the feeling commonly encouraged by the use of the anxious bench with regard to its virtue as a help to conversion. The whole measure is so ordered as to promote the delusion that the use of it serves some purpose in the regeneration of the soul. 4. Harm and loss to the souls of men flow largely from the use of the anxious bench. It is an injury in the case of an awakened sinner to have his attention diverted in the first place from the real issue before him to one that is false. It is an injury farther to have reflection arrested and the workings of true conviction in part or altogether overwhelmed by the excitement of obeying a call to come out in this way. It is an injury again to be induced to lean upon such a movement as though it could have any efficacy at all to bring the soul near to God, but the harm and loss occasioned by the system reach much farther than this. The inward tumult resulting from the occasion is in a high degree unfavorable to genuine seriousness while it lasts and is sure to be followed by a reaction still more hurtful to the spirit when the occasion is over. All means and measures, says the Reverend Dr. Alexander in his letter to Dr. Sprague, which produce a high degree of excitement or a great commotion of the passions should be avoided because religion does not consist in these violent emotions, nor is it promoted by them, and when they subside, a wretched state of deadness is sure to succeed. A most unhappy influence is often exerted on those who are drawn to the anxious bench, and afterwards fall back again openly to their former careless state. They may have had but very little conviction, perhaps none at all, but their feelings have been excited, and without knowledge or reflection, they have gone forward among the professed mourners, vaguely expecting to gain religion in this way. Afterwards, they find themselves completely stripped of all feeling. They have too much understanding to set any value on their experience, and too much conscience to be willing that it should pass for more than they know it to be worth in fact or possibly they have swung clear over to the opposite quarter, and have no wish at all to be, or to be considered, religious. And yet they have been on the anxious bench, and in great distress apparently for their sins. They have publicly committed themselves, in the case, in a way that is not likely soon to be forgotten. All this works injuriously on their minds now. Rash vows are always hurtful. The posture with regard to religion is altogether worse than it was before. Often disgust and irritation towards the whole subject are the unfortunate consequence. But in a vast multitude of instances, 
the operation of the measure is worse still. The slightly convicted are full as likely to go forward in the way of profession as they are to go back. Powerful considerations are at hand, besides the interest of their own salvation, to hold them to the course on which they have entered. They are committed and have no prospect of coming honorably or comfortably out of their present posture, except by getting through on the side towards the church and not towards the world. There is room, too, for the workings of ambition and emulation, a desire to be noticed, and an impatience of being left behind by others in the career of spiritual experience. It ought not to be forgotten, says Dr. Alexander, that the heart is deceitful above all things, and that strong excitement does not prevent the risings of pride and vainglory. Many become hypocrites when they find themselves the object of much attention and affect feelings which are not real. And if all such impure motives might be supposed to be out of the way, there is still enough to render the danger of spurious conversion in such circumstances alarmingly great. The mourner strives, of course, to feel faith. The spiritual helpers standing round are actively concerned to see him brought triumphantly through. Excitement rules the hour. No room is found either for instruction or reflection. A sea of feeling, blind, dark, and tempestuous, rolls on all sides. Is it strange that souls thus conditioned and surrounded should become the victims of spiritual delusion? All high-wrought excitement must, in its very nature, break when it reaches a certain point. How natural that this relaxation, carrying with it the sense of relief as compared with the tension that had placed before, should be mistaken on such an occasion for the peace of religion, that mysterious something which it is the object of all this process to fetch into the mind. And how natural that the wearied subject of such experience should be hurried into a wild fit of joy by this imagination and stand prepared, if need be, to clap his hands and shout hallelujah over his fancied deliverance. Or even without this mimic sensation, how natural that the mourner, at a certain point, should allow himself to be persuaded by his own wishes or by the authority of the minister, perhaps, and other friends, telling him how easy it is to believe and urging him at last to consider the thing done, so as to take to himself the comfort of the new birth, as it were in spite of his own experience, and be counted among the converted. Altogether the danger of delusion and mistake, where this style of advancing the cause of religion prevails, must be acknowledged to be very great. The measure of the danger will vary, of course, with the extent to which the characteristic spirit of the system is allowed to work. A Weinbrennerian camp meeting, surrendering itself to the full sway of this spirit, will carry with it a more disastrous operation than the simple anxious bench in a respectable and orderly church. But in any form, the system is full of peril, as opening the way to spurious conversions and encouraging sinners to rest in hopes that are vain and false. There need be no reserve in speaking or writing on this subject. Neither charity nor delicacy require us to be silent where the truth of religion is itself so seriously concerned. 
to countenance the supposition that the souls which are so plentifully carried through what is called the process of conversion under this system are generally converted in fact would be to wrong the gospel. Let God be true, though every man should be a liar. Of all the hundreds that are reported from year to year as brought into the kingdom among the Methodists, United Brethren, Weinbrennerians, and others who work in the same style, under the pressure of artificial excitement, how small a proportion give evidence subsequently that they have been truly regenerated. The church at large does not feel bound at all to accept as genuine and worthy of confidence the many cases of conversion they are able to number, as wrought with noise and tumult at camp meetings and on other occasions. It is taken for granted that a large part of them will not stand. And so it turns out, in fact. In many cases, the fruits of a great revival are reduced almost to nothing before the end of a single year. So the system unfolds its own nakedness in a practical way. And this nakedness comes into view, in some measure, wherever much account is made of the anxious bench. There may be no methodical extravagance, no falling down or rolling in the dust, no shouting, jumping, or clapping, only the excitement and disorder necessarily belonging to the measure itself. Still, it is found that conversions made this way do not, as a general thing, wear well. No one whose judgment has been taught by proper observation will allow himself to confide in the results of a revival however loudly trumpeted, in which the anxious bench is known to have played a prominent part. He may trust charitably that out of the fifty or a hundred converts thus hurried into the church, some will be found holding fast the beginning of their confidence firm unto the end. But he will stand prepared to hear of a great falling away in the case of the accession as a whole in the course of no considerable time. Of some such revivals, scarce a monument is to be found at the end of a few months, unless it be in the spiritual atrophy they have left behind. And it often happens that churches, instead of growing and gathering strength by these triumphs of grace, as they are called, seem actually to lose ground in proportion to their frequency and power. If any weight is to be attached to observations, which are on all sides within the reach of those who choose to inquire, it must be evident that as this system is in all respects suited to produce spurious conversions, so it is continually producing them in fact to a terrible extent. For the evil is not to be measured, of course, simply by the actual amount of open defection that may take place among those who are thus brought to embrace religion, So many and so strong are the considerations that must operate upon a supposed convert to hold fast at least the form of godliness after it has been once assumed, though wholly ignorant of its power, that we may well be surprised to find the actual falling away, in the case of such ingatherings, so very considerable as now represented. As it is, it becomes certain, in the very nature of the case, that this apostasy forms only a part of the false profession from which it springs. While some fall back openly to the world, others remain in the church with a name to live while they are dead. This presumption is abundantly confirmed by observation. 
Very many thus introduced into the church show too plainly by their unhallowed tempers and the general worldliness of their walk and conversation that they have never known what religion means. They have had their experience centering in the anxious bench on which they continue to build their profession and its hopes. But farther than this, they give no signs of life. They have no part nor lot in the Christian salvation. Notoriously, no conversions are more precarious and insecure than those of the anxious bench. They take place under such circumstances precisely as should make them the object of earnest jealousy and distrust. The most ample evidence of their vanity is presented on every side. And yet the patrons of the system are generally ready to endorse them as though they carried the broad seal of heaven on their face. Of conversions in any form, they can be sufficiently jealous. They think it well for the church to use great caution in the case of those who have been led quietly under the ordinary means of grace to indulge the Christian hope. They shrink, perhaps, from the use of the catechism altogether, lest they might seem to aim at a religion of merely human manufacture. But let the power of the anxious bench appear, and, strange to tell, their caution is at once given to the winds. This they proclaim to be the finger of God. Here the work of religion is presumed at once to authenticate itself. With very little instruction and almost no examination, All who can persuade themselves that they are converted are at once hailed as brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus, and with as little delay as possible gathered into the full communion of the church. And this is held to be building on the true foundation gold, silver, and precious stones, while such as try to make Christians in a different way are regarded as working mainly, almost as a matter of course, with wood, hay, and stubble. Wonderful infatuation, stupendous inconsistency.